welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Kings chapter 3, if you would. Uh, we are back into our series called Eat This Book, which we took a little hiatus uh, from, or uh, we, we went on a hiatus uh, for Advent, which was fantastic, by the way. Um, super excited about what happened there. And if you, uh, if you remember, we, we, uh, we had been kind of plotting our, our course or our, our uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Progress, thank you very much. Progress on a, this little map here, uh, which has changed a few different times. But last time I connected to some dates because we're actually getting to the point in the story where we can begin to sort of cross-reference the events that we're studying with actual historical dates that are uh, not only in the scriptures, but also outside of the scriptures. We, we know that. Uh, and so if you remember, you know, the book of Genesis, we started there. Good place to start, right? Because I'll uh, refrain from any bad baseball jokes that my grandpa told me about. You know that one, right? In the big inning. All righty then. Genesis, we get all kinds of stuff. Certainly the creation of the world. Uh, we get the, the beginning of the, the Israelite people. We get Joseph, which takes up the large portion of the narrative at the end. And then uh, into, straight into the Exodus, where we find the Israelites in Egypt. Uh, Moses is sent to get the people out of Egypt. They made a movie about it. It's called The Prince of Egypt. Uh, shortly after that, uh, the, the, the Israelites kind of go through this cycle of, of you know, sort of uh, good cop, bad cop, uh, where they faithful, unfaithful, faithful, unfaithful. God sends all these judges. There's about 12 of them. So we get the book of Judges. And shortly after that, uh, we find the Israelites looking across the fence to the neighbors saying, hey, they've got a king, why can't we have a king? And we never do that, right, seeing what our neighbor wants and asking for it. But they did, and so God sends them this king, uh, King Saul, and then, of course, into King David. And we get to, this morning, Solomon, uh, King Solomon, one of the kings of Israel, one of the most um, pro prolific, one of the most prestigious, uh, I guess would, would be another word, uh, kings of, e uh, of Egypt, kings of Egypt, goodness gracious, kings of Israel, thank you very much. Uh, so a couple of things about Solomon that you, that you should know. Solomon was actually the son of David uh, and was born to Bathsheba, if you remember that story. That was what we were supposed to talk about last week. Uh, the kids were with us in the gathering, so we decided not to, right? You know, like, hey kids, here's a story about a king, he's up on his rooftop, you know. Could have gotten awkward real fast. If you don't know that story, talk to me afterwards. Come on, what is it with you people, man? Second hour, it's like crickets around here. You guys got to liven up, liven up. Man, oh man. So uh, Bathsheba, born to Bathsheba, son of uh, King David, uh, took the throne in like 960 BC. So shortly, uh, about a thousand years before Jesus shows up on the scene, we have King Solomon. Um, he was actually opposed by his brother uh, and a group of folks, a guy named Joab and another guy named Abiathar. They sort of conscript, you know, con got together and decided to s oppose the, the kingship of Solomon. Uh, Solomon has them done away with, which is code word for... <coughs> Uh, and he, he essentially like clears house, right? New Congress and gets the whole new, everybody in the king's court, he, he appoints, they're all his friends, they're all his peeps. And that begins kind of the golden age of Israel's history, or that sort of, you know, sets things in motion for Solomon to build the empire and the kingdom that he ends up building, uh, which was massive and, and very, very wealthy. Uh, Solomon was known for a lot of his building projects. He built, of course, the first temple in Israel. He built uh, a number of different military bases and a number of different high places of worship throughout the kingdom and the empire of Israel. Uh, it was, it was quite, quite astonishing and astounding. Not only just biblically we have this, but also extra-biblical materials. 
um, half, about halfway through, the, the nation of Israel was split up into 12 tribes, if you remember from the story in Genesis, um, Jacob's 12 sons. And it's split up by different um, uh, line or, or geographic markers that we get in, um, I think it's the book of Numbers. Halfway through, Solomon changes this up, and he actually sort of redraws the lines as far as how Israel is broken up, and it's largely due to tax purposes. So essentially, how to, to, in order to tax the nation better or more, uh, you know, with less people or, you know, whatever, more streamline the process, he re basically redraws the lines, and everybody in the area hockey league got really upset about that one. <laughs> Come on, that one was actually pretty good. So he redraws the lines and, uh, and, and, and for really for tax purposes, but also for indentured s servitude, essentially slave labor of, of his own people. It gets pretty bad by the end of it. Um, penned thousands of, of proverbs and songs. Of course, we know him for uh, Song of Solomon. All you junior high boys out there read that one. Uh, you know, Proverbs and the book of Ecclesiastes, extra biblical, the uh, wisdom of Solomon is found in the Apocrypha, very prolific writer, one of, arguably, one of the most fascinating, powerful, interesting people that's ever walked the face of the planet. Um, so this morning, as we study Solomon, there's all, obviously all kinds of places we could do that. I want to focus on a couple of different nuggets, a couple of different threads I want to pull out. And if you've been with us in this study, you've probably, pay, if you were paying attention, you've noticed that a couple of themes have kind of risen to the top or risen through any of the teachings that you might have sat through or participated in. And, and arguably, when you're going to study the scriptures and you're going to look at the whole of the book of the Bible, certain themes are going to rise through it. But I would, I would submit also that particular communities, the way in which a community reads the text, certain themes are drawn out. And certainly one could argue that you know, when a particular person is, is ends up being uh, doing the bulk of that teaching, what God's doing in my, in my life and in my heart and how I approach the text often comes through in, in what we end up talking about. And so there have been a number of themes that have kind of risen up. One, if, uh, one could be like this idea of two tales, or there's always two stories that are being told. You know, whether it's in the Bible or elsewhere, there's always these two stories that are being told. And every great movie, every great book that you've ever read, there's often there's two stories that are being told. There's two ways of seeing things. There's two ways of being human in the world or whatever. And the role of the, the reader or the people in the stories is to figure out which one to listen to, which one do you allow in. Uh, there's two humanities, right? Cain and Abel in the story of Genesis chapter 4. There's two ways of being human. It goes this way for Cain. It goes this way for Abel. What do you choose? Uh, there are, in Deuteronomy, one of my favorite ones, today I set before you life and death. Choose life. It's not far from you. So there are these themes that come up. Two locations, Egypt, Canaan, you know, Egypt in the, in the promised land. Uh, and the resounding question of the scriptures that it sort of walks us up to each and every time is, as a people group looking back through the lens of scripture, you know, the question is asked of them, but it's asked of us. It's asked of every human. It's asked of individuals. Will you, will they, did they, or will we align ourselves and our hearts and our efforts with the heart of God for the world or not? Passively, actively, will we oppose it? Will we stand against it? Will we align ourselves with it, which is what the Hebrews call shalom, or will we not, and will we stand in the way of it? Solomon and the story of Solomon is not much different in that sense. So jump in with me, First uh, Kings chapter 3. Uh, and this is really the beginning of Solomon's kind of rise to the, to the, uh, uh, the, the top of, uh, well, world history at that point. Uh, the, king Gib the king went to Gibeon to order sacrifices for that 
was the most important high place. Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream. And God said, ask for whatever you want me to give you. Solomon answered, you have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given to him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now, Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in the place of my father David, but I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among your people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count. So give your servant a discerning heart. I've lost my place. Give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong for who is able to govern this great people of yours. So if you don't know anything about the story of Solomon, Solomon is known as the wisest person ever. Uh, This is the beginning of it. God comes to him in this dream, and it's kind of like a genie in the bottle, right? Like the lamp gets rubbed, out pops the genie, and what do you want? Free wishes, except he only gets one. What, what, God comes to him in this dream and says, ask whatever you want, and I will give it to you. And Solomon, in all of his wisdom, which he hadn't asked for yet, asks for wisdom, and this becomes the foundation upon which this great nation of Israel starts to rise and is built. Um, He is, uh, before we kind of jump to, oh, well, and then the, in the next little section, if you, if you read on in chapter 3, there's this first kind of, um, really this classic story of these two moms who come, uh, this, or these two women who are arguing over this baby, and they're both saying, it's my baby, it's my baby, and they bring it, you know, like the, the, the king's co- men, they can't figure it out, they can't figure out how, who, who's actually the mother, so they bring it before Solomon, and they, you know, the whole case is presented, and and uh, Solomon says, tell you what we're going to do. We'll cut the baby in half. We'll give each of the moms the half of the baby, and they can go on their way. And, of course, uh, one, of, one of the women says, no, stop. Uh, let the baby live. Give it to the other woman. And Solomon says, there's your mom, right? Because every mother would give up their own rights, desires, needs, appetites, love for their child. And Solomon says, that's the mom. So this great case of wisdom is shown, and on, on we go with the, with the book of Solomon. Now, before we get to the Queen of Sheba, which becomes an important part of the story, I want to draw out one thread that's absolutely critical to the study of the scriptures, I would submit, but also certainly this story. And, and I would say it this way. God is looking for a body. God is looking for a body. If you turn back to Exodus chapter 6, there's this um, these famous, like, uh, the opening of chapter 6 in Exodus, this famous text that, that Israel, Jewish people still come back to to this day because it's this moment where God says, I will do these things for Israel. So in Exodus chapter 6, it says this, starting in verse 6. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. And then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from Egypt. And then if you skip over to chapter 19 of Exodus, we have another kind of really earth-shattering statement by God uh, to the people. He says in verse 5 of chapter 19, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So God rescues Israel out of Egypt and in the process says to them, you will be my people and I will be your God, which might not sound that crazy from our perspective looking back, but if you're in the first century, in the ancient, well, before the first century, hundreds, thousands of years, arguably, before the turn of the the century, and, and 
God says, I will take this group of people and you will be my people. This is earth shattering news. This is a very new idea because up to that point, if God is going to be represented to the people, how might that happen? Images, right? Idols. This is why you have this just plethora. If you go back in ancient history, you have all these images and idols to the gods that people worship back then. Because when God was represented to a group of people, it wasn't done through other human beings, but it was done so through a particular image or a face or an idol itself. But God says, no, actually, and think about the, the, the Ten Commandments. One of the first ones that God says to the Israelites is, you shall not make any graven what? Idols, images. Why? Because you don't need it anymore. God says, you will be my people. If the world wants to know who is this Yahweh, he look, they look, need to look no further than Israel. You will be my people. And out of you, I will make you a priest, a holy nation. So this is earth-shattering news on the, on, the, on the landscape of things. That this group of people, not an image, not an idol, but this living, breathing, walking Israelite nation will be, for me, the image of, if the world wants to know, they would need to look no further than Israel. So Israel is to be this people who would align themselves with God's heart, with shalom and what that looks like. Israel would be this people who would align its heart and the hearts of its people with God and God's heart for the world. They would be this particular group of humans living in a particular way that represented God to the nations. They would maintain justice and righteousness, Scripture would tell us. They would hear the cries of the oppressed. If Israel was to do anything, they were the group who was crying out in oppression, and God heard them. And so they then would be the group of people who always heard the cries of the oppressed in the world, who took care of the widow, the orphan, the slave, the foreigner. Right? We find this over and over and over again in the law. Take care of the widow, the orphan, the slave. Don't harvest to, your, to the edges of their field. Leave some for the widow, the alien, the foreigner. Why? Because this group of people would be the image of God in the world. Essentially, this group of people would be the antithesis of everything that Egypt stood for. If you think about Egypt in the story, Egypt is not just a location. It's actually a, a physical, spiritual state of being. Egypt is everything that isn't God, everything that goes in the opposite direction of Yahweh, everything that's the antithesis, anti-kingdom, you might argue. Israel was to be that which stood in opposition to that. You tracking so far? So God is looking for a body in the story, and he finds it in Israel. Then, I would ask, why does the queen of Sheba come to visit Solomon? This woman, powerful, comes and, and visits Solomon, I would submit, because she heard about the body. Yeah, not rock-hard abs, six-pack They've been lifting, they've been lifting. First Kings chapter 10, that one didn't go well, sorry. As soon as it came out, I was like, backtrack, backtrack. First Kings 10, verse 6 says, She said to the king, I report, or the report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true. I did not believe these things until I came and saw them with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half of what was told me. In wisdom and wealth, you have far exceeded the report I heard. How happy your people must be, how happy your officials are who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Praise be to the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel. A foreign, pagan, Gentile woman, queen, comes to Israel and gets it. That it's Yahweh, and because of Yahweh, and and Yahweh's justice and righteousness, which you've been charged to maintain, that God has 
blessed you. She gets it. She sees it, that you would maintain justice and righteousness. Now, I'm not going to argue that the only reason that the Queen of Sheba came to visit Solomon was because of Israel's faithfulness. Certainly, one, if you study history, you know that trade routes are very important, and they had common interests. And so let's come and see this nation that were, yeah, all kinds of other things happening there. But suffice it to say, I would go on record and say that when God's people align themselves with God's heart, the world gets healed. The kingdom of God comes to bear on earth as it is in heaven. Do you remember Jesus' prayer in Matthew? Uh, Our Father who art in heaven, thy kingdom, uh, your, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When God's people align themselves with God's heart, shalom. People, things, the world we live in begins to heal. There are flashes of brilliance in the story of Solomon where we find Israel living into what God, what Yahweh invites them to live into. And when it happens, it's beautiful, it's lovely, it's the way it should be. And yet, amidst this story, as we'll soon see, that it takes a turn very, very quickly. And I think the author gives us these little clues and hints that I want to hone in on, that we find Solomon and we find, eventually, we find Israel east of Eden one might say, which is code word in the Bible for saying uh, run amok, Uh, outside of the way things ought to be. Some might say Egypt. Uh, 1 Kings chapter 9 is our first clue. 1 Kings 9 verse 15 says, Here's the account of the forced labor King Solomon constricted to build the Lord's temple, his own palace, the terraces, the wall of Jerusalem, and Hazor, Megiddo, and Gezar. Um, Friends, Bible trivia. What is the dominant lens that Israel's history is seen through? They made a movie about it. Slavery. What's the event called? The Exodus. It's the Prince of Egypt. If you don't remember the Disney movie, you know, Moses, the Prince of Egypt. The dominant lens, the story of all stories, the one, think about the ways in which the Israelites were commanded to, to celebrate and in, in, in their religious activities and their celebrations. I would submit all of them, if uh, either explicitly or implicitly, are connected to the Exodus event. Remember, 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 don't forget, don't forget, don't forget who you are and where you've come from, that you were once slaves in Egypt and I, the Lord, Yahweh, saved you, rescued you, and brought you out of that land and into a land flowing with milk and honey. This is the lens through which the story of the scriptures is seen and told as it relates to Israel. What does verse 15 say? Did anybody catch that? Here is the account of the forced laborer. That's code word for slaves. And what does Solomon build with slaves? The very temple of Israel. Gang, hey, wake up, okay? You're you're looking at me like, yeah, this is old news, dude. I've already heard this before, whatever. You gotta hear how... I think just bonkers this is in, as it relates to who Israel's supposed to be and what's actually happening here. Solomon builds a temple to worship Yahweh in it. So essentially, we find Solomon building the temple to the God who frees slaves with slaves. <laughs> it's a little ironic, don't you think? A little too ironic. 
I really do think. I mean, it's like rain on your wedding day, right? It's like a black fly in your Chardonnay, <laughs> okay? I mean, it <laughs> did you know that Darwin married his own si- a cousin? <laughs> it's true. It's true. I, I think her name was Emily or Elisa or something like that. He married his own cousin, which we now know genetically is not a good idea, <laughs> right? So the guy who, you know, the, the whole species bit, uh, and his life's work might be rendered a little shifty knowing the fact that he married his own cousin. It's a bit like I was reading on the, I, was, I, was, I looked up stories that were ironic on the, on the Googles. <laughs> I found that one. Uh, I also found one, there was this large uh, lifeguard like party, this huge celebration, like this you know, society of lifeguards or whatever. It's kind of like Dead Poets Society, but for lifeguards. So at this huge party, you know, this big spread, big, huge estate or whatever, of course it's got a pool. Do you know what they found at the end of the night? Somebody got drunk, fell in the pool, and drowned at the lifeguard party. <laughs> it's a little ironic. It's a little ironic. We find the king of Israel building a temple to Yahweh with slaves. Building a temple to the God who frees slaves with slaves. Are you, are, are, is this my track in here? All right, we nailed that one in da- deep enough. Okay. All right, okay, so end of verse 15, we get three locations. Uh, Hazar or Hazor, Megiddo, and Gezar. Megiddo is a, is a valley north of Israel. It's essentially where Asia, Europe, and Africa kind of all come together. To say it's a strategic location is a bit of an understatement. Um, Solomon is found building military bases. These are three. There were many of them all throughout the empire where he built up these military bases um, for the, uh, you know, the performers who would come to the king's parties and perform. No, just kidding. That's a joke. It was for uh, a large and burgeoning military. Uh, and, and look at 1 Kings chapter 10. We get more of these clues. Verse 6, 10, verse 26 says, Solomon accumulated chariots, horses. He had 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities. Also with him in Jerusalem, the king made silver as common as in Jerusalem as stones and cedar as plentiful as sycamore fig trees in the foothills. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and from Ku. The royal merchants purchased from them or f- uh, them from Ku at, at the current price. They imported a chariot from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. They also exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and of the Arameans. What is the most powerful weapon of war in the ancient world? Horses and chariots, friends. It's the F-whatever fighter. Uh, in the ancient world, if you're going to, if you're going to, if you're going to participate in mass destructions of other people, you're going to do it with horses and you're going to do it with chariots. The king of Israel, Solomon, is found building the temple with slaves. He's found building military bases and he's found with thousands and thousands of horses and chariots. Did anybody catch where they got them from? <laughs> Wake up, people. Egypt over and over and over and over and over again in the scriptures, the Israelites are told, remember, don't forget, don't go back, don't become Egypt. And what happens to Solomon, the wisest person who's ever walked the face of the planet, the leader, the king of Israel himself? He's selling, he's building an empire on the backs of slaves. He's using slave labor to uh, fortify his own interests. He has massed, uh, amassed a military that is very, very large, He's not only 
And, and all of this, he's getting materials from Egypt itself. Did anybody catch the last part of that verse? Not only were they importing war horses and chariots, but they were exporting them. He's become an arms dealer for crying out loud. It's like a bad Nicolas Cage movie, you know? I mean, think Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, you know, blood die. I mean, it is, it is that bad, people. Which kind of brings us to the question of, like, where do you go from here? Right? I mean, we're talking about Solomon here. According to the scriptures, and, it, and, it, and arguably you could just notch it down maybe, one of the wisest men who's ever walked the planet. The king of Israel. What is that? Did anybody ever hear about the story when the cell phone went off in church? It was like a, it was a timer, you know, and it was like right around Halloween, and it was like, it was that, that one, uh, like, sci-fi one on the iPhone, right? We couldn't figure out where it was. It ended up being in my wife's purse. <laughs> Cannot, ironic, right? Ironic. You can't make it up. I will tell that story until I die. Just fantastic. But so, where do you go from here? Like, maybe you could say it this way. Solomon was the wisest person that's ever been talked about in the scriptures. And yet, even for Solomon, Egypt was right next door. Egypt is not just a location. It is a spiritual state of being. It's a place where we enslave, we are enslaved and become enslaved to things that do not give life. This is Egypt. Egypt is when you've forgotten. Egypt is when you've forgotten where you've come from. Egypt is when you've forgotten your own name. Egypt is when you have forgotten who it and what it is that gives you life. That's Egypt. For Solomon, the wisest of the wise, and yet Egypt is right next door. The things that we chase after and amass in an effort to give life, in an effort to secure our positions in the world, in religious communities, before God, before our bosses, before whoever, and they own us. No amount of power, strength, opportunity, authority, no amount of possessions, comfort, wealth, no amount of theological pedigree, knowledge, or privilege. If you have all the right answers on whatever debate it is and you're on the right side of whatever the debate is, no amount of any of that at the end of the day clicks you one step further or closer to the heart of God. None of it does. And so if I could encourage you at all today, this might seem like a bit of a downer, but quite frankly, I find it unbelievably freeing to know that there is nothing I can do, amass, gain, know, decide, stake a claim on that ensures my security or my relationship with God. It is grace. It is grace, grace, 
grace, grace, it's grace. I can hear my grandpa singing, grace, grace, God's grace. You remember that song? My brothers and I used to make fun of him. We thought he had a terrible voice. Grandpa Elmer. Grace, grace, God's grace. To a 14-year-old, you know, and four brothers, that was pretty stinking funny. (laughs) But guess what? Grandpa Elmer was right. Maybe we should start listening. And would you have the courage today to just stand naked before God and say, here I am. And be honest about all the ways that we try to grasp whatever it is we're after. And would you be honest enough to just stand there before God and say, here I am. All of my heart that I am able to give you right now in this moment, if you would have me, here I am. And wherever that takes you, take some time and be there. Don't run. Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awakening Community or on Twitter at Awakening Community. See you next time.